Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and can see its night scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. On Wednesday, I did a live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, for the first Unchained Live, sponsored by Concept, and held at my alma mater, Columbia Journalism School. We delved into some substantive issues right away. Competition in the space, Ethereum 2.0, governance, maximalism, and it had several fun and lighthearted moments as well. There was a glitch with the live stream, so that didn't start until 25 minutes in, but we will have the full video out in a couple days, as well as the full audio of the show on Unchained. Thank you to everyone who attended, to Vitalik for letting me grill him, to our sponsors for making it possible, to Columbia Journalism School for hosting, and to you listeners who sent in fabulous questions. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? CypherTrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. Today's guests are Medio DeMarco and Jan Lieberman, co-founders of Delphi Digital. Welcome, Medio and Jan. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So you two recently came out with a massive report on Ethereum. To start, Tell us, what were the biggest top-line takeaways from your research? And why don't we start with Medio? Sure. Uh, there were a few different things we wanted to focus on. And really, the intent of this report was to uh, you know, give it to people both familiar with the space and also uh, fresh eyes and have them understand you know, all the major points, a near-term outlook, a long-term uh, analysis of the economics, uh, roadmap and scaling, and then really try to tie it all together with a, a thorough and uh, you know, critical key risks and concerns section. A uh, few few key takeaways, I think, that we'll you know discuss throughout this uh, throughout this interview. Focus on uh, ICO treasury liquidations, and then uh, you know more importantly, long term uh, staking economics under Serenity. All right, and uh, Jan, what would you say were some of the biggest takeaways? Absolutely, yeah, and and just kind of adding to what Medio mentioned, um, we were really what we were trying to do with this report is help contribute to the conversation and and really help with the, uh, the economics of Ethereum going forward and, and kind of what the proposal is now, our view on it, and things we think they can improve on. All right, so why don't we just dive right into the beginning of the report, which looked into the short term outlook for Ethereum? What are the main factors you're looking at here, and what effect do you think they'll have on the network and on the price of Ether? Sure. Well, as we saw throughout 2017, one of the big reasons that uh, drove the ETH price higher was, you know, the massive boom in, uh, you know, token sales, uh, which, you know, eventually dried up in the second half of 2018 and really never, uh, really never came back since. Uh, what we wanted to do was do a, uh, you know, an analysis on potential selling pressure that was left in these treasury, uh, treasury balances. And, uh, you know, we had seen other, other research shops uh, or data providers do similar similar pieces, but there were a few things that you know made us want to do our own deep dive, uh, you know, to really try to just try to pick into the numbers. Uh, a few issues that we saw that we wanted to address on, in ours were, you know, one uh, a starting point: uh, how much ETH did this project raise? Uh, 
a lot of projects, uh, a lot of, sorry, a lot of other, uh, you know, providers. Uh, when we pick through that data, we're either based off of news headlines or, you know, use figures that we couldn't confirm on chain. So what we wanted to do was, you know, pick apart, you know, the top 54 ICOs uh, of 2017 and into 2018, uh, which, you know, together raised the bulk of, uh, you know, ICO uh, ETH raised. And uh, the total on that was around 16.25 million. So, you know, the vast majority uh, is captured in around uh, around 54. Uh, and from there, we wanted to identify a good starting point. So what we did was we used uh, blockchain analytics tools from, uh, you know, data provider Bloxy that we are, uh, you know, a pretty big fan of. Uh, and what they allowed us to do was, you know, you know, dig into these, uh, dig into these addresses further, find the, uh, you know, line up the token sale dates, uh, see how much, you know, what, what the total ETH raised at that point was, uh, incorporate private sale addresses, uh, pre-sale addresses, uh, you know, some projects have multiple multi-sigs. So, you know, it was a little manual to go through each one, but we wanted to get the, uh, you know, the cleanest data possible. Uh, so that w- that helped us identify a, a good starting point, which is necessary to, uh, you know, to understand how much left uh, there is to sell. You have to understand what these projects started with. Uh, another another point that we wanted to focus on that, you know, no one had really done yet was uh, try to identify how much of that ETH actually hit an exchange. Now, other providers out there, uh, they do a great job of tracking the total outflows from a certain address. Uh, but what we wanted to do was, you know, take that a step deeper. Uh, and another uh, tool from Bloxy that let us use, do that was they have a great tool at tagging exchange addresses. And they do so at, uh, we could do this at eight hops deep. And what I mean by that is, we can identify when a project moved money out of its treasury. Uh, let's say hypothetically they paid their CEO in ETH. That CEO then sent ETH to a friend. That friend then sent it to someone else. And then eventually that ETH ends up on an exchange. That would all be captured in our analysis. And we did that out to eight, eight transfers deep, uh, which was, you know, when we looked at the data, uh, you know, the vast majority were done eight transfers deep. So we felt that was adequate for, for the purpose of this exercise. And what that led us to was we had a you know really good starting point of conservative data that we verified on chain. We had a uh, really good tool that let us map out you know how much ETH eventually hit an exchange that flowed through a token sale, uh, you know at what depth and whether it was a one tra- transaction from the, from the treasury directly to the exchange, was it passed through a few times? And uh, with those in mind, we were able to get some really good really good data and insights on this. Uh, you know just to run through some of the takeaways of our analysis. Uh, you know, and as the of the end of, is, uh, is basically that yeah. there's just been a ton of selling pressure on Ethereum, right? Absolutely. Uh, so really over the summer uh, around June in 2018, that's when we saw the, uh, you know, the token sales really dry up and it kind of coincided with, uh, you know, the end of the EOS sale, which was, uh, you know, one of the largest, it, it was the largest token sale, but certainly, uh, its impact was more pronounced in 2018. And, uh, you know, that project saw a, sent, had sent a good amount of their ETH raise to an exchange. I want to say it was around 72% of the total raise hit an exchange. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Okay. So a huge impact. And so the most eye-opening part of your report was actually the long-term economic outlook for Ethereum. What did you analyze here and what were your conclusions about Ethereum's prospects long-term? Sure. So um, we looked into, again, the proposal for once it moves into complete proof of stake. And the way it would work is you'd stake 32 uh, ETH and you'd become a validator. And as more people stake, the total amount that's issued increases, but it increases at the square root of the amount that's staked. And what that means is basically, as more is staked, the amount of new ETH that's issued will increase at a slower rate than the rate of staking. So as more is staked, each individual gets a smaller and smaller share. 
And the concern, and then, so what we, we did was we kind of looked into what the expected yields should be right now, or what they would be under current conditions, and whether or not that's viable. So our, our overall takeaway is that you really need substantial network fees early on to, to drive the yields, especially once you have any kind of material amount of staking. And based on today's network fees, that, that you because you can track that, it's just not really a, a sustainable level. And the fact that you're introducing 1,024 shards also implies that, you know, so when you're in terms of network fees, there's the amount of gas that's paid, and that's a fixed amount depending on what kind of transaction or, or smart contract you're interacting with. And then the fee, it's the price of the gas is what's uh, the more of the supply and demand type function. So with 1,024 shards, you kind of have to assume with all that increase in computational capacity, gas prices will go down. So that's, that also doesn't really suggest that network fees can really grow that quickly early on. And out of your findings, you came up with a proposal, which you sort of alluded to, but can you sort of describe what it is that Ethereum is going to do and what it is that you think it should do? Absolutely. So not without diving really into the the complicated aspect of how the 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 amount of issue i guess rather how much how that's determined there's one kind of main toggle that determines the amount that's issued and that's this base reward quotient and the amount that's suggested now would imply that the yield that a validator is getting is likely to be negative after costs and the issue there is that you're not really able to secure a network when you don't have economically motivated validators. So at that point, you either kind of have altruistic miners or validators or those who have uh, malicious intents. So what we're suggesting is increasing the the portion of yield that's, that comes from base reward, from the issuance rather, sorry. So um, if you, the, the two kind of portions that make up the uh, yields are the, the issuance and the network fees. And we suggest that we need to increase the issuance early on so that it can kind of subsidize the lack of network fees. And that way you'll have a stable yield because realistically we think the, the most important part of it all boils down to security. And in order to get security, you need to have enough validators. And in order to have enough validators, you need to have uh, an economic incentive for them to join. And the only way they're economically incentivized to join right now is through substantial network fees. But those don't really exist at the moment unless you have more users and more dApps building on it. So we think it, it makes a lot more sense to increase that issuance to uh, incentivize more validators to come online and establish a more secure network that, that will then encourage building, encourage users, increase network fees organically. And then we kind of taper off our issuance rate over time to to come down to the level that they're suggesting. And we, the way we do it is kind of in a Bitcoin-esque way where we have the, it's, it's a halving cycle every five years, and then it, it maintains that rate in perpetuity. And you, you'd see issuance rates that would be very competitive to, you know, what we're seeing now. Yeah, the whole thing you described is very Bitcoin-esque. And it it just a kind of, I think, reinforces the genius of Satoshi, which is sort of funny because actually in the Unchained Live that uh, I recorded earlier this week, the first uh, pre-submitted listener question from one of my podcasts was, if you could go back in time, Vitalik, what, would you, what advice would you give Satoshi? And he said, um, 
oh, check out the GitHub for Ethereum 2.0. <laughs> but from what you're saying, it should be the reverse. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I, I remember seeing that and the reaction was uh, quite, quite great from the crowd as well. <laughs> so in a minute, we'll discuss more about Serenity. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unconfirmed. Back to my conversation with Medio and Jan of Delphi Digital. So yeah, so let's now talk about Serenity. Your report gives this overview of that roadmap, but what concerns do you have as Ethereum tries to upgrade? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really, Serenity is broken up into three separate phases, phase zero through uh, phase two. Uh, and that's going to take place over, you know, as soon as Q4 of this year. And uh, the current, you know, uh, date for completion is 2021, where all the phases are fully implemented. You know, phase zero uh, that we'll see in Q4 potentially, uh, that really launches the beacon chain, which is the uh, new proof of stake chain that will be, you know, basically bridged to the current proof of work mainnet. Uh, and that, you know, that I think one of the more interesting parts of the transition is the uh, the transfer of what's currently on the ETH mainnet over to the new, uh, you know, proof of stake beacon chain. And, you know, the way that's going to happen is right now it's a one way uh, one way transaction. So if you have ETH on the, uh, you know, the current mainnet uh, and you want to uh, move it over to the new proof of stake chain, what you do is you deposit it into a smart contract address. You're then credited with, you know, the equivalent amount of Ether on uh, the new beacon chain. Uh, sometimes referred to as uh, Beeth, uh, B-E-T-H. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of that money you have is now locked up for uh, basically two years until the completion of this transition. Uh, so that's a, that's an interesting point because uh, to have your funds locked up uh, for for two years in a, you know, a platform that's really undergoing a, a sizable and a substantial change, uh, that, that comes with a lot of risk. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how many people move over, you know, if the incentives are there to uh, to do that, uh, there are some discussions about making it a two way bridge where you know you can send money back and forth between the new ch- the, the new proof of stake chain and the old uh, proof of work mainnet. Uh, you know that's still being discussed, so there's a lot to a lot to figure out in that sense. But I think that'll be uh, an important topic to watch. Yeah, one other thing that I wanted to ask about was, um, or or just mention, frankly, is that you also note that there isn't really a good plan for how the different shards are going to be communicating with each other. And this is something else I've picked up on as I've been diving a little bit into Ethereum 2.0. And I mean, granted, I know that their roadmap is like somewhat long, but I feel like they should have a sense already of how they're going to do that. (laughs) So, (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Well, let's talk more generally about competition in the smart contract space. Ethereum is currently obviously the dominant platform, but I think we're starting to see that there are a lot of fears that it could lose its dominance now because it will be competing against these new next-gen protocols. And I think the, the way we're seeing this fear kind of come out in the community is there's this sort of new strain of like Ethereum maximalism that um, is happening, uh, which actually also we did talk about in my interview with Vitalik. Um, but what problems do you think Ethereum needs to solve in order for it to maintain its position? 
Yeah, no, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you bring up maximalism in, uh, for the, for Ethereum. That is a, that is a new development. Um, you know, personally, you know, each, each project has its pros, its cons. Uh, we don't really buy into maximalism too much. Uh, you know, we like Bitcoin a lot, but, you know, Bitcoin will have problems, uh, in terms of uh, sustainability in the future. So that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, none of these platforms are perfect, especially in their current sense. But, uh, you have to understand that, you know, the trade-offs that each are making to, uh, you know, to try to identify if that has a good chance of succeeding over the long term. Uh, in terms of Ethereum, I think one point that we get across in our report is, you know, you know, uh, dates for scaling have been pushed back and missed in the past. Uh, there are still some important, uh, you know, technical issues to figure out, like you had mentioned, cross-shard communication. You know, at best right now, this is set to be completed by 2021. That's, uh, that's a long time in technology, especially with these newer protocols launching. That's not to say that Ethereum doesn't have, you know, significant network effects and, uh, you know, other things that make it, uh, a difficult to, uh, you know, replace or compete with incumbent. But, uh, you know, one thing we harp on is, uh, you know, especially in technology, first movers often, um, you know, they have the advantage of being first, but, uh, you know, in a lot of situations, uh, it's the second movers that, uh, you know, can win in the long run. And that's not to say that Ethereum can't, but it's certainly something to be cognizant of, especially with these, uh, with these platforms. Um, and it really just comes down to when Ethereum can scale, uh, if, it, if it takes, you know, up until 2021, that's, you know, still a good amount of time. But, uh, you know, if it really gets delayed farther out than that, that's when I would really, uh, you know, start to have some red flags and be afraid that some of these other uh, competing platforms could dislodge it. And the other thing that that plays into is just development. Uh, you know, because the network is going through such significant change, uh, do you have developers start to wonder about building on some other platform? You know, oh, I could build this app today, but, you know, in a year or two years, what have you, uh, you know, it could be a totally different system. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of flux going on. That's uncertainty. Uh, you could see people build on other platforms just out of, uh, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, that's, it seems like a more stable choice right now. And, uh, you know, lastly, just to mention, you do have uh, platforms like, uh, you know, you see Cosmos, Polkadot, uh, you know, people always talk about Definity, Hedera, what have you. Uh, but, you know, Bitcoin as well, you know, there are things that you can build on top of layer two that, um, you know, could, could offer some interesting products in the future. So that'll be important to keep your eye on as well. Yeah. Well, one question that I had actually was, I, I totally get what you're saying about how there are instances in which the second mover is the one that succeeds, but will that apply as much to money? That's something that I, I wonder a lot. And actually this sort of leads into the next question that I had for you, because you actually also in your report point out this really interesting conundrum which is that as cryptocurrencies become more widely used, then the velocity increases, which means that the price will fall. So even with the staking in um, Ethereum, you seem to believe that this is going to pose a problem for Ethereum. So how do you think they should resolve that? Yeah, the velocity argument is always an interesting one, especially when it comes to conversations about money. And I think um, it applies, I, I think once you kind of introduce staking, that different type of dynamic shifts the velocity argument away a little bit. So uh, from for one reason being the fact that now you now have a yield. So with this, uh, with, with, a, with a built-in yield, it kind of normalizes the price to an extent. Granted, you do have the yield in the asset itself. So that kind of reduces the, the effectiveness of the normalization. But just the fact that you do have a yield built in, um, price begins to stabilize around what the market deems that yield, uh, that risk-adjusted yield should be, so that that within itself helps reduce the um, 
the the dangers of of higher velocity and velocity itself as an argument doesn't hold as well when the asset isn't really purely uh intended to be money so with ethereum it's being used for you know the gas is spent for smart contracts it's it's collateralized whether you want to issue die or or a host of other things in, in the DeFi space and i think that the the velocity argument kind of starts to dissipate over time and and so what we wanted to show was that it, it does have potential effects but we believe that the uh the yield and the fact that um, Ethereum will be used in different facets will help mitigate that risk. Medio, did you want to add any more? Yeah, yeah, just um, to touch on that, uh, you know, just to reiterate what Jan said, MV equals PQ under Serenity Staking Economics, not a perfect perfect application. Uh, you know, in some ways, ETH is a currency, it's a commodity, and also a yield, uh, yield deriving asset, yield producing asset at that point. So again, not the not the uh, you know perfect application of that formula. And the other thing to keep in mind is you know with high velocity comes a lot of transactions. But for Ethereum, a network that's going to be dependent on uh, you know generating fees for its validators, uh, the more you know the higher the velocity, the more turnover, the more transactions there are in the network. That's more fees for the validators. So the, the math becomes a lot more uh, circular in some sense and uh, a little you know tricky to apply. But I, I did like your point about. Um, you know, sometimes a long, you know, track record is important for something trying to be a currency. And, uh, you know, that really, you know, one thing that we wanted to focus on in our risk section was this idea of ETH as a store of value, because there have been some people out in the space that have put forth some really good pieces on, uh, you know, why they think uh, in the long run value will, you know, coalesce into a dominant store value chain. And uh, that was uh, John Pfeffer and, and Tetris Capital, two, uh, two uh, reports that we uh, reference in ours. Uh, really good analysis that I recommend uh, you know, people read if they're interested in learning about you know, value accrual for digital assets. And uh, you know, right now, with the, in their uh, reports, they posited as you know, Bitcoin has this clear advantage in that sense. So uh, in the long run, because Bitcoin has this advantage, all the value will you know, basically consolidate into Bitcoin and all these other projects become you know, com- commoditized, what have you. Um, that is... You know, we won't know until, you know, you see how how it actually plays out in the long run. Um, We like Bitcoin. We have a favorable opinion on it. Uh, Not to say it doesn't have issues of its own, but we did think it was a little aggressive to assume that only one of these accrues all of the value. Uh, We think we could see situations where, you know, a few dominant chains emerge, Uh, even if, you know, the the dominant chain itself has the has the majority. We still think there will be. Uh, you know, competing store value chains. And really our logic behind that is that each thing will have different security models, different trade-offs, unique features. Uh, it makes sense that investors and users would, you know, diversify across different platforms in case, you know, one of these, uh, you know, had a failure or what have you. We think there's a chance or a likelihood that a few dominant chains emerge. Uh, you know, how they differentiate differentiate each other uh, remains to be seen, but we do think it's a little aggressive to assume only one chain accrues all the value. Uh, although we could see situations where uh, a chain, you know, such as Bitcoin, if it succeeds in becoming a long-term store value, uh, could accrue most. Yeah, yeah, and I, I also think that sort of in the, uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it the short long term, uh, we'll probably see multiple simply because uh, maybe the tef- the technology will be differentiated in a way where. Um, you know, you'll do certain things on one blockchain and other things on another. Um, but then maybe like really far in the future, they could converge. 
but anyway, we, <laughs> my show may not exist at that point. So I don't know if we'll come <laughs> back and, and find out the answer to that question, but we'll have um, to uh, revisit if we were right then. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Decades from now, let's check back. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, it's been so great having you both on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. If you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now and sign up on the homepage. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.